4, 2 through 9. I plead with Yodia, I plead with Sentiki to agree with each other in the Lord or to have, uh, be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, uh, or I ask you, the Greek word there is syzygous, which is kind of strange sounding, but it may be the name of a guy. I ask you, Syzygus, to help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Or it could mean, as it's translated in the NIV here, I ask you, loyal, loyal yoke fellow, which it basically would be a title for all of the uh, Christians in the congregation. Kind of like the English word brook. A brook can be the name of a guy. It can be, can be the name of a stream. Or it can be in the name of a girl. So I ask you, Syzygus, to help these women who have contended in my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Those of you who like church history, you know Clement was the bishop of Rome at the end of the first century, and he wrote the letter First Clement, which is one of the most important non-biblical letters of, of you know, early Christianity. It could be him. It's probably not, though, but Clement was a common name. Uh, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers who's, who's together, whose names are written in the book of life. Verse 4. And Paul goes on here to just give uh, scatter, shotgun uh, exhortations to the congregation. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness or let your reasonableness a lot of legitimate ways to translate that Greek word. Uh, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and, and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, my brothers and sisters, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will will be with you. Amen. So our church secretary, Sherry, was out of the office this week, and we ran the bulletins on Friday. At that, Friday, a week ago, I thought I was going to preach on church unity, which is a great topic, and certainly an important topic in the book of Philippians. Specifically, this admonition to the two women, Euodia and Syntyche, to agree with one another in the Lord. You know, get along. And you ever read through the Bible and you're just kind of surprised by something? Um, I was surprised by verse 2. You realize what Paul's doing in verse 2. He's calling out two women by name. You know, I mean, this is a letter that would have been read to the entire congregation. Hey, Euodia and Syntyche and everybody's eyes would have been directed towards these two women who were fighting about something, I thought, that is a great pastoral strategy. <laughs> you troublemakers better watch out or you're going to... Can I do that? Is that allowed? Paul did it, so I can do it. 
As the week went on, I, I was just drawn to verse 6, though. This, past, this verse, you memorized it when you were a kid, maybe. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. I'm like, I need that verse. I really need that verse right now. I, I went, it was like Thursday night or something. I, I'm a total insomniac, and I woke up at 1 o'clock in the morning, and the wheels were just spinning. So I, I did my normal routine. I went downstairs and fixed myself a bowl of late-night cereal, and that didn't work. So I watched a little late-night ESPN, and, and that didn't work. And by 2 o'clock, I am just pacing the floor of the living room in the kitchen downtown or downstairs. And Erin comes down, and she must have heard my footsteps, and she just gives me that look like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> yeah, I need this verse. I really need this verse. And you do too. What is it that you stew over? You, same stuff as me. Life responsibilities, work responsibilities, uh, kids, a whole lot of kids doing, um, money. I love verse 6. It's like the one thing you and I know about each other, even if we have never met and never had a conversation before. This is the one shoe that fits on every one of our feet that we, we're plagued by sinful anxiety. I mean, what could be more apropos? We, some of you are going back to school like in a week. I mean, you've got the, the worry about going back to school. It's, it's drilling holes in your stomach right now. We were there. We, we experienced that too. Some of you teachers, I know how overwhelming it is to come back after a two-week vacation and try to jump back into the saddle. What must it be like to come back after a two-month vacation? And you've got to feel like you're climbing up Mount Everest again. You homeschool moms out there, you know, day one hasn't even begun, and you're probably feeling pretty stressed out. All of us, we stew. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. And I hope that... You don't find this topic too fluffy. You know, we're going to talk about anxiety. And it's not the kind of sermon that you should preach every Sunday. But it, it's in the Bible. I mean, this is very rubber meets the road, kind of Christian faith in action. And I, so I'm not going to apologize for preaching on it. Let's start here. Number one, how does our culture view personal anxieties? How does our culture view personal anxieties? I think that fundamentally our culture's view uh, of personal anxieties is it's Buddhist and it's Hindu. Uh, both of those worldviews have as their ideal this stoic detachment from life. Uh, Disney says hakuna matata, right? We're, that's, just, that's how we're told to deal with our anxieties. It's like, no worries, man. Just chill. We're told to... Relax. I love this word. Whatever. Right? Whatever. With a shrug. Don't take things so seriously. Just, just chill out and don't get your nose bent out of joint. I doubt that many people in our culture realize that they're fundamentally drinking from Hindu and Buddhist wells. But, but they are. And a lot of people think that kind of the goal to the good life is just to get to the point where you're no longer bothered by or phased by anything. 
Like, if you could just be that cool, unflappable, flat-lined person who, um, you know, nothing phases you. That's what our culture says. It, it sounds extremely attractive. Like, wouldn't it be great to always be cool under pressure? Uh, I would love that. So what's the problem with this view? Well, the problem is it's not where the scriptures want to take us. It's a very copacetic view. I mean, it's great to uh, unwind your lawn chair and sit there on the beach and just be Bob Marley kind of chill, but, but the biblical worldview will never take you to this spot because according to the Bible, life matters way too much to be indifferent towards it. So to be stoically detached from life can nowhere be found in the scriptures. I mean, in some sense, you might even say that the Bible is really uptight. It's an uptight book. It says that people matter infinitely so. That things really matter. What's happening matters. Because human actions and human decisions matter so much, there can never be a stoic indifference. Rather, the Bible is always trying to spur us to an intensity of concern, as David Pallison puts it, uh, spurs us towards this intensity of concern for all things. Which leads me to number two. Number two. Um, Not all anxiety is sinful. Some of your anxiety is utterly pleasing to God. Did I just say that? (laughs) You go home and... What did the preacher preach on today? Oh, he told me that my worry's not sinful. Well, some of your worry is not sinful. Um... Not all of it is. Some is absolutely appropriate because some of your worry and my worry is spurred by love. And at the end of the day, love worries. Let me give you a couple examples of this. We've already seen one of them in the book of Philippians. So Philippians 2.24. We read about Epaphroditus in 2.24. How, quote, Epaphroditus was deeply distressed in his heart when you Philippians found out that he was gravely ill. You remember that? Epaphroditus, the guy who carried the letter to Paul there in Ephesus in prison. He, he got extremely sick. He almost died. And he's, Epaphroditus was deeply distressed in his heart when you found out that he almost died. Another way to put it. He was deeply distressed that you were so deeply distressed. Or he was stressed out worrying about how you might be stressed out worrying about the news that he almost died. It's, it's cool. It's this... It's the circle of loving anxiety that one uh, precipitates the other and, and vice versa. Paul says, is there any indication in Philippians that, that Epaphroditus was sinfully fretting when he worried? No. Another example of this, 1 Thessalonians 3.5. Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, which was a very persecuted church, he hadn't heard from them in a long time. <clears throat> he was worried. He basically says in 3.5, when I could stand it no longer because I hadn't heard anything from you in a long time, uh, when I could stand it no longer, I sent Timothy to find out how you were doing. That's legitimate worry right there. Another way to put it, when days passed and you never responded to my email or text messages, I, I couldn't. I just had to come drive over to your house and knock on the door. It was bothering me so much. Are you okay? 
The most famous of the, the biblical worry passages in the Bible is 2 Corinthians 11.28. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul goes through and he gives all of the hardships that he suffered. Oh, I've been beaten, I've been stoned, I've been caned, I've been shipwrecked. And then he goes at the very end of that list, he says, besides all of these other hardships I suffer, there is the daily anxiety I feel for all the churches. So he was a man that love made him stress out about his babies, which is right. It should be. So the point I'm trying to make is the world matters because the world matters, because human actions have uh, ramifications that echo into eternity. Uh, because God is so concerned about the world, there is such a thing as holy anxiety among his children. And it's an anxiety that is prompted by love, which has a focused intensity of concern, which expresses itself in focused intercessory prayer, which is you know love in action. All of that, I, I hope, is present in your life. I suspect it is. Like, um, I think there, you've got a lot of good anxiety in you. At least I hope so. Let's go on to number three. What is then the bad anxiety that plagues us according to the scriptures? What kind of worry is forbidden? Uh, David Pallison, I've relied on him a lot in this sermon and his work with Christian Counseling Education Foundation in Philadelphia. David Pallison describes sinful anxiety as the whirling, churning, spinning wheels of the mind which result from forgetfulness of God. The whirling, churning, spin cycle of anxious frustration, uh, the, the brooding preoccupation that we have with things, which is the byproduct of a forgetfulness of God. So this week I updated my, my uh, computer to Windows 10, and I did so with serious fear and trepidation, wondering, how is this going to go? And I'm supposed to give... A, pr- a presentation after church today using my laptop. And, is this going to work? Should I do this right now? Windows, is Windows 10 going to crash on me? All of us have had that experience where you do some very simple operation on your computer. You, you double-click on a file or you bring up a new tab on your browser. And what happens? You get the blue spinning, spinning wheel of death, right? The blue spinning wheel of death. And that is my image for sinful anxiety. The blue spinning wheel of death gets transported into your brain and you're just churning. You're, you're just over and over. What, what is going to happen at the big meeting this week? Uh, oh my, what is... Uh, I'm such a terrible parent. How are my kids going to turn out? I forgot my keys again. I can't remember people's names. This must be early onset Alzheimer's. And, you churn and you churn. You spin a lot of what-if questions. Um, what if? What if I never get married? What if I'm lonely like this for the rest of my life? What if my spouse, who I'm married to, doesn't change? What if I don't hit my numbers this quarter? What if I don't get good grades? What if my church goes belly up? What if, what if, you, and it's the blue cycle, uh, swirling circle of death. And the next thing you know, you're pacing the living room floor at 2 o'clock in the morning. You do it too. Uh, one of the things I notice is that our anxiety 
it, it focuses its attention in these obsessive, repeating, preoccupation. Uh, uh, we think about the same thing over and over again. We rehearse that conversation that we're going to have, that we're worried about. We, do, we play out that conversation 14 times in our mind before we ever get there. Um, have you ever noticed this? I just realized that was the fourth time I repeated that scenario in my mind. Or I just realized that I read... I've read and reread that email that I sent that hasn't been responded to six times in the last two hours. You, you'll catch yourself if you pay attention with, with this um, repetitive, obsessive thoughts where you, hit, you know, play, pause, rewind. Play, pause, rewind. And you just over and over again. Another way that our, our anxieties, sinful anxieties manifest themselves, you smoke more. Like, you're, you're ashamed to even come to church. You're a Christian who smokes. But you smoke more, you chew more, you drink more. You drink a lot more. You drink a lot more frequently. You, uh, you become a lot more controlling. You become far more possessive. You and I have seen parents that were, like, so worried that their kids would turn out a certain way I mean, they just got possessive and put those kids in a straitjacket and force-fed them and you know, inundated them with the view of the world that was just toxic and fearful. And those kids, they, they bolt. It's funny that when we clamp down the hardest, oftentimes the very thing you fear the most that will end up happening actually ends up happening because you're, you're squeezing the life out of, out of people, out of things. And then uh, some people's anxiety expresses itself in paralysis, a paralysis of indecisiveness. You cannot make decisions. You have to analyze and overanalyze and analyze once again every decision because you think that your decision has to be perfect. And if you, you can never actually make a decision because you're looking for the, for the perfect decision, which leads to being incredibly indecisive. Those are, I don't know... Does any of those hit the mark? <laughs> am I approximating anything that you experience? Am I, yeah, am I just reading you my own letters, uh, my, my own diary entries? <laughs> What's the number one thing that people stress about, the number one topic? Money. It is money. So somebody ended up, they did some research study, survey, few years back, and they, they went to people and they asked them, how much money would you have to make in order to stop worrying about money? And no matter who they asked, how many times they asked, the answer to the question was always the same. The answer was two times what you already make. So if you make 50, you would stop worrying at 100. If you make 100, you would stop worrying at 200. If you make 200, you would stop worrying at 400, which means, tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that the problem is a whole lot deeper. Right? It goes into our hearts. It's not the numbers. It's... Which leads me to number four. I don't want you to reject and totally discount the practical anxiety techniques and advice that the people out in the world would, would hand to you. Um, there's a, this is God's world. There's a lot of common grace out in God's world. Like, 
you can learn a lot from non-Christians. They can, they can teach you some really good things. When, I mean, I, when I was a kid, they taught me deep breathing. You know, inhale for four, exhale for eight. That was good for me. Does that help? Are, are some forms of meditation helpful? Yoga? Yeah, actually, it is. Um, exercise. Does it help if you go out and run five miles? Or you go and lift at the gym? Will that help you relax? You bet it will. That's why you see all these 30-somethings out on the streets, you know, slowly jogging along, because it works. What are some other examples of it? Oh, yeah, talk to your anxiety. Reason with your anxiety. Tell yourself that airplane travel is much safer than driving along the interstate. It's true. It, it might help. <laughs> and what are some others? Get better organized. Manage your time better. And part of your problem probably is that your, your life is a disorganized ma- mess. And then what about medications? Why is there such a stigma in Christian circles against psychotropic medications? Look, you take blood pressure medicine for your heart. Do you think that your brain was somehow exempt from the fall? Right? I mean, the fall affected every part of us. I know why people, Christians get worried about it. They're worried that you'll just take meds and you'll never deal with the spiritual components of what you're, you're struggling with. And that's a fair concern. Both of them are extremely important. And both of them are interrelated, right? I mean, our bodies and minds and spirits and souls, all of it. So yes, uh, address the spiritual in addition to the physical. You never do just one. Um, but drop the whole stigma about meds if, if you need them. Okay, that's, I think, maybe four or five different fixes that are advocated in broader culture. And I want to say, I think those do have a legitimate role in our lives. Those can be very helpful. We should, you should not reject them out of hand because it didn't come out of a verse in the Bible. That's a mistake that we make, is if we can't proof text it, then it must not be God's will. No, this is God's world. There's a lot of common grace out there. There's a legitimate role. What role? A secondary role. Those things are secondary. Um, the, for us as Christians, those things can never be primary. The primary tool that God has given us to deal with our sinful anxiety, I know you're going to be shocked to hear this, but it is actually found in our passage this week, because it's not what every pastor says. It's here. I, I found it. The primary, I hate to call it the secret to Christian uh, peace, because that makes it sound like there's this silver bullet that makes it all better. But I mean, this is about as close as I think you get to a silver bullet in all of the Bible. And that's a strong statement, but I believe it's true. Where can it be found? Look at your Bibles or bulletin. Where is it here? It is, you say, well, it's in verse 6, right? And do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God. It's verse 6, right? No. The secret is not found in verse 6. Well, then you go on to the other gem, verse, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is right, pure, honorable, uh, admirable. I I get them confused. But think about these things. You say, well, that's it. That's the secret to 
Christian anxiety abatement. No, it's not. Which one is it? What verse? What's verse 7 here? Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> but I appreciate the boldness. <laughs> Four, nine. Why don't. No, nobody said it yet. <laughs> it is actually the end of verse 5. Those four little words at the end of verse 5. That is the antidote. Did you see it? The Lord is near. Oh, this is a wonderfully ambiguous usage of the word near. Last Sunday's sermon talked about the second coming of Jesus. So is is that what Paul's saying? The Lord is near as in his second coming return is imminent? Is he talking about like temporally near? Well, maybe. Is he talking about spatially near? We know that after Jesus ascended to heaven, I mean, he endowed his church with the Holy Spirit. Is it, he's clear, he's near to me in terms of the nearness of his spirit. Is, is that what he means? Paul intentionally writes the end of verse 5 is just ambiguous in order to, I think, communicate the Lord is near in the sense of all the above. He's near. And that is exactly what you need. So what happens with the passage is the Lord is near is what leads to verse 6. The Lord is near is what gets you to the prayer and petition with thanksgiving. The Lord is near is what gets you to verse 8, the thinking about the things that are true and honorable. Because the Lord is near, you're thinking about Him who is true and honorable and praiseworthy. The end of verse 5 is what kind of leads to all of the rest. How can, okay, so how can the Lord is near be the antidote to sinful anxiety? Here's the answer. Because fundamentally, sinful anxiety believes that I am alone in a threatening universe all by myself. Sinful anxiety believes that I am, it's, it's me and the wolves. It's me and all the things that are frying me, but I am alone and I am by myself and I am not safe and and whoa, what's going to happen? But if there's someone that's near, and that someone happens to be the Lord, the, the Lord of heaven and earth, I, I guess I'm not alone. See, why is the Lord, Lord is near so important? And why do I call it like the secret? Why is it the silver bullet? Um, it's only four little words. But if you actually study the Psalms, you will find that the Lord is near is probably the number one strategy that David employs throughout all the Psalms. His whole thing is to draw near to the Lord who is near. Psalm 27, uh, he says, um, Lord, uh, my heart says, seek your face. Your face I will seek. I've got to get near, like close enough to see you face to face. And that happens over and over again. David, the psalmist, all of them, they want to experience the unbroken presence of God by drawing near to the one who is near. And that's why verse 5 is so special. It's not because 
It's only one verse. It's one verse that's like the key to all of these other verses that makes all the rest of them make a little bit more sense. If the Lord is near, then I am safe. If, if, if I apprehend the nearness of the Lord, then I'm safe. <laughs> it's okay. Paul Tripp wrote a poem. I think it's kind of a free verse poem based on Psalm 27. I think it's entitled, I am safe. So, Hope this isn't too touchy-feely for you, but... I am safe. I am safe. Not because I have no trouble or because I never experience danger. I am safe not because people affirm me or my plans always work out. I am safe not because I am immune from disease or, or free of the potential for poverty. <laughs> no. Uh, not because I am protected from disappointment. Not because I am wise or strong or... Because I have money, power, position, I am safe because boundless love is in my presence. I am safe because the glorious mystery of grace is near. Divine mercy is near. Divine wisdom is close. Divine power is at my bedside. It's present. I am safe. You you have not given me a ticket out of destruction, Lord. You have not promised me a life of ease. You have not, you have placed, you have placed me in a fallen world. And my, how this world is such a mess. But I am safe because you have given me the one thing that is the only thing that will ever keep me safe. You have given me you. You have given me you. Sinful anxiety doesn't believe that. It believes that I am, in a fundamental way, alone in a threatening universe where the dogs eat dogs. And Jesus says, look at the birds out there. Remember Matthew 28, Sermon on the Mount? Uh, I'm not Matthew 28. Matthew 6, I think it's like verses 28 through following. He says, look at the birds. Don't you see them? God takes care of those birds. You're... You're much more valuable than a bunch of birds. And then Jesus says, so I mean, any full holistic treatment of anxiety has to, you have to look at other passages. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 26, or Matthew 6, you've got to go there. But then he says, he says, which of you, by worrying, can add a single cubit to the end of your life? Remember, what, a cubit was just a measurement it was the distance between, I think, your finger and your elbow, which is, back then, they measured it out as 18 inches. And Jesus says, which of you, by your worry, can even add 18 inches more to the end of the, your walk of life? And one of the tritest prayers that we ever pray for each other is the prayer, God, oh God, be with Steve. Oh, God, be with Mary. Oh, God. Uh, One of the beauties of verse 5 is it teaches us that that trite, overused prayer is the most precious prayer that we can ever pray for each other. (laughs) Oh, God, Lord, be near them. I don't want them to have a a general inspirational belief in you. I don't, don't let them know you from a distance. I want them to know you personally and intimately. So be with Brad, please. Be with him. 
And to me, yeah, I keep saying the same thing. Verse 5 is the key principle. The, the Christian secret weapon against the blue spinning wheel of death which torments the mind. And as I said before, it, if you believe in verse 5, then it will spur everything afterward. Verse, verse 6, the prayers. Verse 8, the thinking. The, it'll bring to you the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Imagine like the divine miracle of that kind of peace. P.G. Woodhouse, my, my favorite author, said he quipped once that the peace of God which surpasses all understanding can only be found by the man who gives up golf. <laughs> okay, a few just very short final ideas. First, and this is a, this is a duh, talk to your father. Like, honestly, talk to your father in prayer. It is not as though your father doesn't care about the things that you care about. It's not as though he's indifferent to your health, your kids, your job. He knows what you need. And so, I mean, why in the world wouldn't you talk to him honestly about your fears? Number second, remember that your father is not merely present at at that moment. He's near then, but he will be near in the future. If we could just get into our heads that God doesn't simply know the future, he's already present in the future, waiting to meet us on the gurney in the hospital, if it comes to that, or in the unemployment line, or in the puddle of tears from a broken heart. If, if it comes to that, to know that God is he's not only present now, he will be present in the future. That's number three. Um, you say that you're worried because you don't have enough saved for retirement. I'm worried because I, don't, I have a family history of cancer. No, don't point the finger at your circumstances. You are worried because of something about you. Like the problem is, it's not the money, like we said earlier. Because if you had the money, and if you had the, the guy of your dream, you would find something else to, to worry about. It's not the circumstances, it's, it's you. You haven't learned yet what it means to, to be content and, and learned how to draw all your strength from the nearness of God. So don't misdiagnose this, pointing the finger in the wrong way. And then fourth, the Bible is giving us an antidote to anxiety, but it's not giving us a band-aid for anxiety. It's not providing us a patch for anxiety. It is providing us a whole new way of doing life. And as such, whole new ways of doing life don't happen very quickly. So if you think that verse 5 is going to help you get rid of all your anxiety between now and Thursday, it doesn't work that way because it's not a quick fix. It, it takes a long time to develop this habit of life, drawing strength and safety from the, the Lord who is near. So just because, I, and I have boiled it down to like one verse, one idea, to one principle, it may sound easy, but I don't want to give off that impression. Because it takes, it takes a while. It also can be done.